Good morning. There are three readings on anger from the Word of God. The first reading is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. The second is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 20 to 25. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. The third reading is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Thanks be to God. This morning, we're beginning a new five-week sermon series that we're calling Breaking Free, looking at what the Bible says about how to handle negative emotions without being handled by them. So uh, we're looking at five. We've got five that we're going to look at over a five-week series, anger, guilt, depression, anxiety, and inferiority, one each week. Uh, Breaking Free, the idea being that you know these emotions will come. There's nothing you can do about that. But when they come, how do you keep from being taken captive by them and and having them control your life? Uh, So right now, there are two groups of people in here with respect to this series. Some of you are thinking, this is great. You know, I I need this. I'm looking forward to this. Others of you are thinking, uh, you know, emotions, five weeks. It's kind of touchy-feely. You know, I don't don't know if I really want to talk about this for five weeks. Um, so to those of you in the first group that are, are looking forward to this, uh, hold tight for just a second while I talk to your less intelligent uh, f- fellow congregants. You know, you, you say, oh, I'm just not an emotional person. Well, there's, there's no such thing. You know, there's people that know they're emotional and know how powerful their emotions are and people that don't. And if you're the second type, then you're even more dangerous. I had this amazing experience talking to a, a couple downtown uh, that doesn't go to our church, and I was telling them about this this series, and the guy, you know, the husband and wife were both there, and the guy said, well, what's the, the first week on? I said, it's on anger. And he said, huh, I, I've never really struggled with that. And behind him, his wife is standing there shaking her head <laughs> like this. If you don't know you have an issue, it's it's even a bigger issue. 
So we've all got struggles in all these areas, and uh, hopefully we're going to make some progress over the next five weeks. Like I said, this first week is anger, and I want to look at it under three headings. First, the prevalence of anger. Second, the proper use of anger. And then third, the practice of anger. Prevalence of anger, the proper use of anger, and the practice of anger. Those will be the three main sections to the sermon this morning, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, the prevalence of anger. And the idea of this first section is just kind of to, to uh, elaborate on what we said already, which is that everybody has this issue. Anger is widespread. It's widespread in our homes. It's widespread in our city. And it happens faster here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, everything happens faster in New York. People get angry much faster in New York than they do anywhere else. One of the city's great tourist attractions is just the altercations that can break out at any moment between two strangers. It makes every day really exciting. I was uh, in a Starbucks recently on the Upper West Side, and there was this great situation that developed where this woman had come into the shop to get a coffee. She had tied her dog up outside. She had tied the dog, a small, really loud, yippity-yappity dog, tied it too close to the door. So every time somebody opened the door, the dog would run into the shop and bark really loud and then run back out as the door was swinging closed. <laughs> so that's pretty good in and of itself as far as you know, exciting days at Starbucks go. But that's just the setup. What, what happened is three women, three strangers, all exiting at the same time in a line. And somehow they were totally oblivious to this whole dog situation, even though they had been there getting their drinks. So the first woman opens the door. She's startled by the dog. You know, dog charges and barks really loud. She's startled. She, she jumps back. And the second woman has to, to jump back to try to save her coffee from the elbow of the, the first woman. And as she jumps back, the, the second woman steps on the foot of the third woman. But nobody spilled their coffee. Nobody was injured. It looked like, you know, it looked like it was no harm, no foul until the third woman taps the second woman on the shoulder and she says, you know, it's customary to say I'm sorry when you stomp on someone's foot. And the second woman says, really calmly, I said, excuse me, and by the way, never touch me again. (laughs) Oh, it keeps going. (laughs) The third woman says, touch you again. You're the one that stomped on my foot. I just think it would be nice if some people had some manners once in a while. The second woman says, Hey, all I'm saying is, if you touch me again, I'll slap you. <laughs> That's when I stepped in to break it up. Just, just kidding. I would never do that. <laughs> Way too smart for that. But the point is, people get angry in this city. It happens all the time. You, everybody has a story like that. You know, you could all tell a story like that. And it's not just in the city. It's, it's in our homes. You know, the thing I hate about preaching. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things I hate about it, but the thing I probably hate most is that whatever we're talking about, I have to face it in myself, you know? So this week with anger, playing the tapes back, and the memory that came back was this uh, time uh, a while back where we're getting ready for school in the morning, and uh, it was not just any day. This was the day Reese, our oldest, it was the day that her class had 
uh, prepared to go to this uh, play. They were going to Cinderella that day as a field trip, so she'd been looking forward to this for like a month. Um, had been, you know, uh, excited about it, talking about it, and that day had finally come. She was so excited, she got ready for school super early, had all this time, and so she was in uh, her room playing with her sister, Anna. They were um, working on a project. They were building a, a hotel for their stuffed animals. So it comes time to leave. I'm supposed to take Reese to school that day, and I, I say from the hall, I say, Reese, it's time to go, and there's no answer. So I say a second time. I say, Reese, it's time to go to school. Nothing. So then I walk to the, the door of her room, and now she's, you know, five feet from me. I can see her. And I say, Reese, it's time to go to school. We're going to be late. Zero response. She just keeps talking to her sister, doing whatever she's doing. So, you know, you never know if they just don't hear you or, you know, if they're actually ignoring you. So I, I say one more time, I say, Reese, it's, it's time to go. We're going to be late. And as I say it, she starts talking over me, saying, just one second, I just got to finish this one thing, I'll be right there, which is when I know that she has been ignoring me. She's been intentionally ignoring me the whole time. And so I say, uh, speaking quite loudly at this point, I don't know if you would call it yelling, what is yelling anyway? I mean, it's such, a, <laughs> such an ambiguous term. Who's to say what counts as yelling? So I, I yell. Reese, come here right now. And I I point to my feet. Come here right now. And so she does, and she's looking up at me, and she's, like, opening her her eyes up really wide, you know, to try to not cry. And um, I said, I really don't like it when you ignore me. And she starts sobbing. um, And she starts crying harder and harder to the point where she's, you know, I'm still trying to get us out the door to school on time. And uh, I say, we got to go. Come on, we're going to be late. And she says, I don't want to go to school today. And I says, today you're the Cinderella. You have to go. Come on. And she's like, I, I don't want to go. I'm too tired. Uh, so I, I finally get her out the door. I'm like trying to hug her and apologize to her the whole way there. She's just crying harder and harder. We finally get to school She's, she's sobbing, saying, I can't go to school today. I can't go to school today. And, you know, everybody can hear her. The other parents are like, what's wrong with Reese? I'm like, I don't know. I guess she's really tired. <laughs> but the point is, I completely wrecked this little girl's world. You know, this day that she had been looking forward to for a month, all because of anger. And that's, you know, as bad as that is, it's obviously a pretty tame example of how bad it can be. I want to read you this letter that somebody wrote into a newspaper counselor, you know, like an advice column. They wrote in, they said, uh, Dear counselor, you told the mother of a three-year-old with anger problems to let him kick the furniture to get the anger out of his system. Well, my younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. He's 32 years old now. He's still kicking the furniture, what's left of it, but he's also kicking his wife, the kids, anything else that gets in his way. Last week, he kicked a television out of a second-story window. The window was closed at the time. You can get really, really ugly, and there's some version of that in every one of our homes. You know, maybe you're not kicking the TV out the window, so you don't think it's as bad, but it it takes different forms. Maybe there's no explosion at all. You know, some of you, you've been sitting here thinking, well, this is a problem that, you know, you're thinking of somebody else in your family or a friend. This is a problem that they have. 
Well, no, it's a problem that you have, too, because people respond in different ways. You know, some people are skunks when they get angry. They just spray everything inside and stink up the whole house. Other people are turtles. They withdraw into their shell, and they won't come out. And if you're of that type, then when you get angry, you, you sulk, and you seethe, and you bottle it up. And you think you're all mature because you got a lid on it, but really it's just this nuclear waste that's slowly leaking out over time, poisoning all of your relationships. So it, it's a prevalent thing. It's a big deal. It's all of us. It's in our city. It's in our homes, whether you explode or implode. Anger is, is something that's a, a curse for all of us, which means we have to do something about it. And that leads us to section number two. First, the prevalence of anger. Secondly, this morning, the proper use of anger. What's the proper use of anger? One of the things I want to do in this series is highlight the unique resources that Christianity offers for dealing with each of these emotions. Because everybody's got an answer. You know, because these are universal things, everybody gets angry, everybody deals with anxiety, then every religion or every philosophical system or every psychological school, everybody's got uh, an answer as to how to deal with these things. And to some extent, you know, some tool is going to be better than no tool. So even if you just read some random article online about how to deal with anger, that's probably better than nothing. And then one step better than that, you know, if some other religion, if you think about like the Buddhist approach to anger, for example, well, if you practice that, if you learned about that, you're going to make a lot of progress. It's going to be very helpful. Uh, but what I want to do in this series is try to, as much as we can to focus on what's unique about Christianity. Not to say that Christianity's, you know, got the best approach and everybody else is wrong. And not to say that there's not areas of overlap, because of course there are, but but where are the unique areas? And when it comes to anger, what's unique about the Christian approach, especially compared to uh, the Eastern religions or Greek Stoic philosophy, for example, is this idea that anger is not necessarily bad. You know, so in those other systems, the idea is you're supposed to transcend anger altogether eventually. You know, as you reach enlightenment, you get to the point where you can just, everything rolls off of you. But that's not what you see in the Bible. For a Christian, the goal of spiritual transformation is not just this generic enlightenment. It's being conformed to the image of a person. It's becoming like Jesus. And Jesus got angry. God gets angry in the Bible. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. You know, they don't know what to do with that at first. They say, well, I want a God of of pure love. Well, first, you know, so you've never been mad at somebody you love? You know, love and anger can go together. But then the other thing is just that if, you know, you you start reading about God's anger initially and you're, you're disturbed by it. You know, you see him, him judge people for their sins and punish people, and you think, what kind of God is this? But then the more you read and the more you wrestle with it, you realize the only thing more disturbing than a God who gets angry would be a God who didn't. Because you look at the things he gets angry about. You know, these you saw it in the reading. He gets angry about injustice. He gets angry when strong people abuse and exploit and take advantage of weak people. He gets angry about dishonesty and these terrible things that go on in the world. And the question is, well, what do we want him to do? To just not care? You know, to just like, oh, tisk tisk, you shouldn't do that. And with Jesus, it's the same thing. You know, that, that scripture reading you heard this morning, that's probably the most famous example of Jesus's anger, where he, he goes into the temple the background on that, by the way, is, you know, so who are these people selling things in the temple? The law required that everybody had to make these animal sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, regardless of where you live. So it's not like there's multiple locations. Everybody has to come to Jerusalem. Well, 
traveling with an animal a long distance isn't fun. And so what, you know, entrepreneurs figured out, well, let's set up shops and we'll sell the animals right on site so people don't have to travel with them. But, of course, it's like a, you know, ridiculous markup. You know, it's an exorbitant increase in price. And it doesn't hurt the rich people that much. Fine, they can pay it. You know, it's just part of doing their duty. But for the poor, they, they, it created a real problem. And so Jesus comes in, and he just flips out. You know, he, he's flipping over the tables. Money's going everywhere. He's busting open the cages. The animals are running everywhere. Oh, by the way, he's got a whip with him. And, you know, he's, he's whipping people out, saying, you've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. You're making a profit off of God's law and off of the backs of the poor. And he's angry about it. He's angry about it. He doesn't just say, look, let's, let's sit down and have a nice talk about this and see if we can't come to a compromise. He says, no, don't need to talk about it. Just pretty sure all of you need to leave. And here's how it's going to happen. And what we see in Scripture with God and with Jesus is that anger is actually this, this like shot of spiritual adrenaline that pushes them to, to deal with something that's wrong. So historically, you can see this in groups of people like the abolitionists in this country. If you read anything about the abolitionists, what you figure out pretty quickly is that they were crazy. They were absolutely possessed. And the only thing that uh, slave owners and staunch anti-slavery people in the North had in common during the 1850s and 1860s is that they both hated abolitionists equally. Strong anti-slavery people hated abolitionists because they thought they were just completely insane. And they kind of were. They kind of were insane. They were possessed. They were so angry. They were just consumed by anger because... One group of people is buying and selling another group of people. And that makes God mad, so it made them mad. And it's so easy for us to say, well, we should just have, you know, civil solutions to these problems. But the, the, it never, the abolition never happens without the abolitionists, without these people getting so mad. Now, to take it into our own context today, and I'm going to upset a lot of you by, by saying this, but I just, I want to get you thinking in the right direction. So it is so easy, it is so easy to sit back and look at these extreme pro-life groups and say, like, how, how could they do these terrible things? You know, I mean, this is so out of bounds. And it is. It's absolutely out of bounds. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination condoning violence. But the question is, you know, how does God see it? You know, is this a life or isn't it? I hesitate to bring this up because, you know, I know a lot of women in our church have had abortions, and the idea is not to make you feel guilty about it or to make you feel condemned. Uh, I, the one thing I know is that the pain is universal. Whether you think it's right or wrong, the pain of going through that experience is universal, and God sees that pain, and God is with you in that pain. So this isn't about you. It's about everybody else. It's about the rest of us who might say, oh, it's wrong. Yeah, of course it's wrong. But sit back and do nothing and then judge these people or why are they so angry? What are they so, you know, how could they be so out of control? Well, some problems only get solved with anger. Some problems are worth getting angry about, and I'm not condoning their methods. I'm just saying that if you never get angry about anything, you know, so everybody knows it's a sin sometimes to get angry. Fine. What the Bible also says is that it is a sin to never get angry. 
And if you never get angry about anything, or if you only get angry about the things that your friends get angry about, these pet issues, you know, the point of bringing up abortion is, okay, fine, so God's mad about slavery? We get that. We, we, you know, we understand that as 21st century New Yorkers. But the things that God is angry about and the things that we're angry about are a Venn diagram. You know, there's a few things in that sliver in the middle that he's angry about and we're angry about, like uh, injustice or the oppression of the poor, maybe. But then outside of that, there's all these things that we get angry about that he doesn't care about at all, and all these things that he's angry about that we don't care about at all. And becoming conformed to the image of Christ means that, you know, that Venn diagram closing, those two circles converging so that they're one and the same. I, I guess the question is, it's not about abortion. It's not even really about societal issues at the end of the day. The question just for you this week is, what is it that makes God angry that doesn't make you angry, that you don't care about at all? And it may be something, you know, forget about society, maybe focus on your own life. It may be God gets angry about sin. What's the sin in your life that you, don't, you just kind of shrug at? You know, it doesn't make you angry at all. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's, it's too bad that I'm still dealing with that. When are you going to get mad about it? Louis C.K., the comedian, has this amazing bit, which, like a lot of his bits, makes you die laughing and want to cry at the same time. Or he's talking about now that he's in his late 40s, just how angry he is about his own pornography addiction. Just He's just angry. Like It's not like I feel bad about it or kind of embarrassed about it anymore. I'm just mad. I'm mad that I'm still this person. The question is, when are we going to get mad? When are we going to get mad about the things that aren't the way they're supposed to be in our life and in the world? Because if you never get mad, you're never going to deal with it. What Paul says about sin is put it to death. Kill it. Well, that takes anger. You have to get angry to put something to death. It's not just a resolution. But instead, what happens is, you know, you say, wow, this sermon got really serious all of a sudden. You know, we were talking about Starbucks a few minutes ago, and then all of a sudden it's abortion and slavery and pornography addictions, and I don't really know what happened. That's kind of the point. The point is, look at the stuff that we get mad about. We get mad about when somebody stomps on our foot or when our daughter's not ready for school on time. Look at the juxtaposition between that and the types of things that God cares about. And anger is an expendable resource. You know, so we use up all our anger defending our own rights. And we have no anger left to defend the rights of the poor or defend the rights of refugees and immigrants. We use up all of our anger trying to make people do what we want them to do. And so we have no anger left to deal with the sin in our own lives. That's the second section of the sermon, the proper use of anger. And the Bible has a unique perspective on it. The Bible actually sees anger as a gift from God. It's a tool. It's a resource that you need to get things done. But for us, we use all our anger on other things so that when it comes to these things that we should be angry about, the name of God being trampled on, justice being trampled on, we shrug because we're all out of gas. Let's go now to the third and final section of the sermon, which is the practice of anger, the practice of anger. So I'd like to, at some point, uh, do a whole sermon on, you know, how do you become more angry about the right things? That's worth a whole sermon in and of itself. 
We don't have time for that this morning. Uh, so I want to s- focus on the other half of the problem because it's a, a two-pronged problem. You know, it's a double problem. We're too angry and we're not angry enough. We're angry about the wrong things. We're not angry about the right things. I just want to focus on the uh, arguably simpler side, which is how do we get uh, less angry? How do we get more in control of our anger when it comes to these little things that we shouldn't be angry about to begin with? And the hope is that as we kind of conserve our energy, maybe there's more anger left over to deal with some of these things that we really should be angry about. So a three-step process I want to talk about in this last section. How do you get in control of your anger? The first thing to do is to just, when you start to get angry, when you start to feel yourself burn and you feel that burning rising up, first thing you do is you ask yourself a question. And the question is, what expectation of mine has been violated? What expectation of mine has been violated? Because anger is always in response to a violated expectation. You know, I expect my daughter's going to come the first time she calls and she doesn't. Or I call and she doesn't. Or the woman expects she's going to walk through the door without anybody stepping on her foot and it doesn't happen that way. Even if you think about toddlers, like the, the tantrums that toddlers throw, that's what it is every time. It's a violated expectation. I expected to get the pink cup and you were offering me this hideous yellow cup, this joke of a cup, you know, what do you expect me to do except flip out? Or I expected to, you know, finish building this tower, and now you're telling me I have to take a bath. And, you know, you just, they fly into a rage. They fly into an absolute rage. Violated expectations. Toddlers, us, it's actually the same with good anger. Same thing with God. It's a violated expectation on his part. I expect that the poor are going to be treated in this way, and when they're not, I get mad. But the difference between us and God is that his expectations are always valid. His expectations are always important just because he has them. He's God, and ours aren't. So one way of thinking about it is that when we pretend like our expectations are valid and important just because they're ours, what that is is it's playing God. When you yell at your kids, you're essentially saying, the, the only way that makes sense is if you presume I am God of this house, I am God of this family. My expectations should be carried out. And when my expectations are violated, watch me burn. You will feel my wrath. So that's the first step is just to stop and say, what is the expectation here? What expectation of mine has been violated that's making me so angry? And what you see pretty quickly is that it usually isn't really that important or that valid to begin with. Which leads to the second thing. The second step in, in dealing with anger as it rises up is... After you ask what, what expectation has been violated, then there's this forward prayer that I, I think I'd like to suggest you pray. I've used this in the past, and it's been helpful when I remember to use it and then I forget. And, but the, the prayer is, you know, when you feel this anger rising up, the prayer that you say to yourself is just four words, I am not God. I am not God. So if you're with other people, you might want to say this silently, you know. <laughs> Unless you want somebody to say, no kidding. Um, but if you're by yourself, you, you do want to say it aloud, actually. It can be powerful to say it aloud. I am not God. To remind yourself that, why am I angry? Because I expect my ex- the, the way that I want things to go, that's the way it's going to go every time? Well, I'm not God. I am not God. One of the dumbest little things that I struggle with with anger is if I'm in the kitchen and I want a particular utensil, you know, a certain knife or something, 
I go to the first drawer where I think it's supposed to be. I open it and it's not there. Fine, no big deal. But I, I think I know where the second place is going to be. So I go maybe to like to the dishwasher. Checking the dishwasher, if it's not there, I start to feel myself burning a little bit. And then if I check the third place, you know, the drying rack on the counter or wherever the third place is, and it's not in the third place, I'm, I'm completely on fire at that point. You know, because I'm thinking, where could it possibly be? And the issue is this expectation. What's the expectation? That I'm going to be able to fluidly carry out every task I want to carry out the exact same way it is in my mind. So in my mind, open the drawer, grab the knife, start chopping. I think it should just go that way every time. But I'm not God. It only goes that way for God. To be a human being is to not be able to find the knife until the fourth try a lot of the time. And to remind yourself of that, that this is just part of being human, is a big way to, to diffuse your anger and to poke a hole in your pride. So first, uh, look at your expectation. What, what expectation has been violated? Second, that, that prayer, I am not God. But then the last thing is, you know, techniques aside, at the end of the day, the only way we're going to get become people who are slow to get angry, who get angry about the right things instead of the wrong things, is to be more connected to the heart of God, to be more connected to this God who is slow to get angry and only gets angry about the right things at the right time in the right way. And the funny thing about that is that anger actually comes into play there too. Because why aren't we more connected to God? Why don't we have a closer relationship with this God who could show us the proper use of anger? For a lot of us, it it comes back to anger, and it's this fear that God is angry with us. We're afraid, you know, you say God is angry at at sin. We kind of know that in the back of our minds. And we think, well, why am I going to draw near to this guy who's, who's angry with me? But he isn't. There's this uh, remarkable passage in Exodus 34 where Moses says to God, he says, I want you to show me your glory. You know, in other words, like, I want to see your, your full beauty. And God remarkably grants the request. He says, okay, go hide behind that rock over there so you don't die. And I'm going to uh, pass by in a flash of light. But when he passes by, he announces himself. And, you know, it's easy to think that, like, all of the attributes of God are on the same level, you know, like, well, God's got all these hundred different characteristics, and they, you know, how do you know which one's most important? But God tells us right here, this is his one-sentence bio, you know, Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, all right, if I have to describe myself in one sentence, here it is. And what he says is, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And what's interesting about that is it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where he says slow to anger, you know, he admits that he's a God that gets angry, so he's not embarrassed about that. He puts his own anger in his one-sentence bio. He puts it front and center. He's not trying to hide it. or It's not like God's dark side. You know, this is his glory. This is who he is. But he says, I'm slow to get angry. I'm slow to get angry. It takes me a long time. And so with you, you know, you think, well, God's angry with me. Maybe because you turned your back on him a long time ago. You know, you, you ran away from God. You said, I don't need you, God. And you think, well, I'm not going to come back. Now it's been so long. By now, he's surely angry with me. Well, it hasn't been nearly long enough for him to get angry with you. He's slow to get angry. And in the meantime, you know, the whole point of the cross 
is that God has absorbed, God has taken upon himself the very worst of your sin anyway. He's absorbed those consequences himself so that you don't have to deal with them. So he's not angry with you. But you can't take advantage of that and say, oh, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. You know, Paul says in Romans 2, he says, don't you know that his patience, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, don't, don't take advantage of it. There's also that verse in Isaiah 30, a beautiful verse, where it says, don't you know that the Lord still waits for you to come so that he can show you his love? He still waits. He still waits for you to come. But he's not going to wait forever. You know, there's a, the, a length of time. At some point, you have to bow the knee. At some point, you have to confess him as Lord. And, you know, you think there's always going to be a chance, but at some point, it will be too late. So the, the last thing you got to do to become a person who handles anger properly is to connect with this God who can show you how, who can come into your heart and fill you with his spirit and transform you supernaturally. To do that, you got to realize that because of Jesus, he's not angry with you anymore, but you still have to repent. You still have to confess. Let's pray. Father, we're so embarrassed when we look at the juxtaposition between your anger and ours. We look at the way you intended anger to be used and then these silly ways that we use it instead. I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would do a work in us, that you would change us, not into people who never get angry, not into people who just shrug at everything, but into people who are so slow to get angry when we're offended or when somebody does us wrong, but who have this building anger on your behalf about the things that you care about on behalf of others. We see this in the life of Jesus, your son. We pray that through his example and also through his sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible for us to come to you, you would make us into people like him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We'll head now into a time of response, which means you can do a couple of things. In the first place, you can go and receive communion, which is the celebration and the commemoration of what we were just talking about. Jesus on the cross, making it possible for us to come back to God by dealing with and absorbing the consequences of our sin. So we celebrate that every week. You take the bread, which represents his body, and dip it into the wine, which represents his blood. And you take any and remember and unite yourself with him again. The other thing you can do during this time is go and receive prayer. There's folks in the back with name tags on. Could be something related to this morning's message, something sparked by this discussion, or maybe it's something totally different, something going on in your life. Whatever it is, they're in the back and they'd be happy to pray with you. So you can do either of those things now as we sing.